American history is full of the good, bad, and everything in between. But in the end, these are our stories. Today's journey into American history will take you through log cabin living in Ohio, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and the election of 1880. Our episode today is on the life and death of President James A. Garfield. So pull up a chair and join your host, Jacob Thomas, for another episode of The History Book. Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of The History Book. Uh, today is a very special episode as I am here at the James A. Garfield National Historical Site with the site manager Todd Arrington for an interview today. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, should be great. Uh, today's really going to be a little bit different of how I normally do my episodes as today's going to be more of an interview. So I have a few questions that uh, I'm hoping you'll answer for me and then I'll we'll uh, see how it goes. <laughs> okay, looking forward to it. Uh, so... Just to kind of start off with the first question, so how does James Garfield's log cabin upbringing really impact his political life? Well, yeah, Garfield, of course, as you refer to there, is the last president born in a log cabin. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he grows up very poor. Um, you know, he grows up in, in difficult circumstances. His father dies when he's less than less than two years old. He's about 18 months old when his dad dies. So he grows up really in what we would think of today as a, a single parent household mm-hmm. uh, with his mother, <clears throat> excuse me, and three older siblings. Um, and so, you know, I think he, he, he grows up very poor and that really does impact his outlook on the world. He's not a guy that's born, you know, with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, I think he learns the value of hard work. He learns the value certainly of education yeah. uh, because, you know, he, he has this vision of himself, you know, going off to the high seas and becoming a sailor and first of all, never learns how to swim. Yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I came to the house uh, a couple months ago and uh, went through the museum downstairs. He almost drowns like twice, right? Yeah, um, he 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 ended up working as a teenager on the Ohio and Erie Canal. He was you know one of the the tow you know the working on the tow path, pulling the the boats really through the canal. Yeah, and uh, again, never learned how to swim. And yeah, he fell in fell in the the canal at least a few times that we know of. Um, and yeah, since he never learned how to swim, you know, almost drowned and, um, uh, got very sick at one point actually with what we think was probably, you know, malaria or something akin to it and went home and his mother kind of nursed him back to health. And then she's the one that really convinced him, Hey, you probably don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. And then she suggested that he go to school and Uh that's really what put Garfield on the path of education. And he, Turns out he had a great aptitude for that. So he became, you know, really this, frankly, a brilliant scholar. I mean, he was an academic long before he was in the army or in politics or anything like that. And I think that that, that very poor upbringing that, that, you, that you referred to at the beginning really made him see the value of the hard work that it took to become uh, a star pupil at, at, at all of these different schools that he went to and, and really, you know, turned him into who he was. And at one point, isn't he a, a minister too, isn't he? Well, he was a he was what we would think of today as like a lay minister. He was not okay. ordained. Okay. And I do see him referred to sometimes as the only ordained minister to be president. And that's really not accurate. He was a, a, a member of the Disciples of Christ, which mm-hmm. is kind of a homegrown Protestant yep. denomination here in Ohio. Um, and, and they really didn't, at that time in, in history, did not have a formal ordination process. Mm. So, yes, he preached the gospel um, at, at many churches, kind of r- rural churches here in Northeast Ohio that had sort of, you know, didn't have permanent 
ministers. You know, they kind of sure. relied on these traveling ministers. And he did do that. Uh, so, yes, he did preach, um, but he was not formally ordained because there was no formal ordination process at that point for, for the disciples. But, yes, he was, again, something of a – again, I, I refer to him as a lay minister, kind of okay. a, a temporary or almost part-time yeah, yeah, uh, I unofficial minister. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a pretty extensive background in the United Methodist Church. And, oh, okay, okay. Uh, I, I was in the uh, Marshall Wesley, if you didn't see my mask, uh, down at Marshall University. Okay. That's a campus minister for the United Methodist Church down there. So, okay. yeah, I understand it's the laity minister, not so right, much. Right, right, right. Actually ordained and gone through the whole divinity yeah, school. Yeah, no and all seminary that. or anything like yeah. that at that point for the disciples. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think we touched on it a little bit, but um, I, I, I think what happens with a lot of these uh, really, the early presidents, even. Uh, before we get really radio and television, we don't get a lot of their personality. They just kind of seem like the stoic picture of that's what a president looks like, but you don't get to know who they are. Uh, so I guess really my question is, is what was Garfield's personality? Like, how was he as a person? Well, that's, yeah, that's a great question. And, and you're right in that, you know, we get this sort of marble image of these guys. They become um, the statues that they, yeah, exactly. They are. Exactly. And, um, and you know, in Gar- in James Garfield's case, he was a very outgoing personality. Uh, he had a deep, booming voice, which which is one of the things that really made him successful in politics. Because in addition to being you know a very uh, very smart and and having some very deep convictions, <laughs> people can hear you. <laughs> people could hear him. Yeah, he had a he had a very loud and and booming voice. He loved to laugh. Um, you know, his 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 children left behind memories of him. You know, playing with them and and singing and laughing. And in fact, one of my favorite stories about him is from actually, believe it or not, the morning of the assassination attempt uh, on July second, eighteen eighty one. Prior to leaving the White House, you know, he was in a great mood because he just kind of won a big political victory. Um, and, and he was also, you know, happy that he, you know, he was going on vacation and yeah. so he was excited about that and, and he was playing with the, some of the children in the white house and, you know, kind of tossing them around and just being a, a dad. And, uh, and so, yeah, he, he, that was his personality. He, he was, you know, very, uh, very much a family man, uh, at that point in, in his life. He enjoyed being around his family. He, he was outgoing and I think that's also again something that that made him really successful in his 1880 presidential campaign which I know yeah. we'll talk about later yeah um, is that personality that sort of and, and very welcoming uh, when people started coming here to this property to, to see him in 1880 so yeah no he was he was you know he was very smart certainly ambitious and I don't think ambition is a thing that's no. bad even though sometimes people act like uh you know elected officials who are ambitious that that's a bad thing i don't think that's a well, bad that thing on that time you really had to have it well sure and it but it was also challenging too because you you could be ambitious but you couldn't appear to be ambitious yeah because you know it was the the sort of the the social conventions of the time were that you couldn't appear to be sort of too eager to be elected to to, to, to yeah, some I've, office yeah i've seen that happen before cuz uh <laughs> and like you said we'll talk about it a little bit later about the actual election of 1880 um but I've seen it with Lincoln. I've seen mm-hmm. it with other presidents before Garfield of they want to be president, but they're not going to come right out and say, yes, make me the president. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, and, and again, that had everything to do with the social, yeah. the social norms of that era, which was just, it was not appropriate. And yeah. it was actually really kind of considered almost unseemly really for someone yeah. to be too overtly I th- I mean, I eager I think you can kind of look back to even the first president, George Washington, 
of kind of setting that example of, uh, you know, I don't really want to be president, but I'm going to be president. Well, viewing it as a duty. Yeah. You know, the country is calling for me and therefore I, I must, it's my duty to, uh-huh. to respond. No question that, that almost all of these guys uh, who have been president Absolutely. Want, want to be president. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they have to be very careful with sort of how they, they couch their ambitions. And, and it's not like today where, you know, we have – you have candidates who are overtly seeking the office and they're seeking it sometimes for, you know, two or three years yeah. prior to an actual election. Um, you don't have the – People like Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton that are always kind of in that conversation of running well, for president. Right, yeah. And, and this is also, and again, I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, this is also the era when you know, the, the political conventions really did matter yeah. because those were the things that actually picked yep. the candidates. Before all the primaries. And right, before there were primaries or caucuses or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. so you know, Garfield's certainly a product of his time. Did he want to be president? Yeah, of course he did. Um, but I don't really don't believe that he thought he would be the Republican nominee in 1880. I think that yeah. was a genuine surprise to him. Um, but once he was the nominee, of course he wanted to win the office. Sure. Uh, so the next question, uh, we kind of alluded to it a little bit, but Garfield does serve in the Army. Mm-hmm. But he's elected to the Senate in 1861 and actually leaves the Senate to go serve in the Union Army. Uh, the Ohio State Senate. The Ohio right. State yeah, Senate. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He's elected to the State Senate in 1859 and he stays there, which is actually that's a part time job at that point. Yeah. You know, he he's he's also still at that point the what they called at the time the principal of the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, which is now Hiram College. Uh-huh. Um, so he's doing that. He is also a Republican uh, Ohio State senator. And then yes, in eighteen sixty one, when the Civil War starts, he leaves and goes into the Union Army. Well, why? What convinces him to sort of leave that position to go serve in? the Union Army where they're not doing well at the time. <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, he, he, he you know, the, the Civil War starts in, in April with the, you know, the attack on Fort Sumter and, and Garfield goes into the Army in August. So it's, you know, very early in the war when Garfield goes in. You know, and I think it goes back to that sense of duty that, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm young, I'm able to serve, therefore I should serve. Um, and I do think that, you know, ambition certainly came into play for, for Garfield and for thousands and thousands of other people on both sides of that conflict that, you know, they had ambitions either for, for later political office or for potentially for military glory or whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be that, that they saw this as an opportunity. But I think with Garfield too, it really came down to also just deep conviction that this war was about slavery, mm-hmm. and he said as much in, in in letters and diary entries before the war began and right after it began that this conflict was about slavery. He was never called himself an abolitionist, but he was an abolitionist. He was deeply, deeply opposed to slavery. He thought it was an abomination to to the law and to to the Bible. <laughs> And, uh, and, and he's I, living in an area that's very heavily underground railroad territory. Yeah, I mean, Northeast Ohio obviously is a hotbed of abolitionism. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we have Oberlin and all these, you know, these really important places. Yeah, I come down from nearby Lisbon, Ohio, which okay. is a stop on the Underground Railroad. Well, there you go. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, obviously Garfield is brought up in that sort of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, too, in the 1850s when he's looking for a place to go to college – 
he specifically chooses Williams College up in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and even says, you know, he wants to, you know, he wants to get out of Northeast Ohio and really go experience the abolitionist atmosphere in, in sure. New England. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think, you know, ambition and, you know, a sense of duty, uh, but also just a deep conviction that, uh, you know, slavery is an abomination. It needs to be, it needs to be eradicated. And the way to do that is to win this, this war. Um, that conviction also led him to really be kind of, frankly, very frustrated at times with Abraham Lincoln yeah. because he didn't feel like Lincoln was moving quickly enough to make a, abolition of slavery part of, you know, a, a publicly what something that yeah. the Union was fighting for. And just so I can kind of get a better idea of it, he's serving in the Western Theater mostly mm-hmm. uh, under Grant. Well, he's in the Western Theater. Um, uh, he serves in the Army of Tennessee. Uh-huh. Um, he, you know, he goes into the army as a, as a colonel. He helps raise and equip a regiment that becomes the 42nd Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, early in 1862, he wins a, a, a victory at a battle called Middle Creek in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. This is when the Union is really trying to secure Kentucky to keep Kentucky yep. in the Union. Uh, and Garfield is, is part of that. Um, and then, you know, shortly after Middle Creek is promoted to Brigadier General and then becomes the commander of, a, of an infantry brigade, uh, is at battles like Shiloh, um, kind of gets there right at the at kind of the tail end of Shiloh. Yeah. Um, the Siege of Corinth. Yep. Um, he's present there and then spends some time, gets sort of ends up back in Washington, D.C., kind of waiting for orders for his next assignment. Um in this, in the fall of 1862, while he's still in the army, he's elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Yeah. But he doesn't take office until December of 1863, so he's got over a year before he actually has to go to Washington to be in Congress. And um, and then in that time is also assigned to become the chief of staff to the Army of the Cumberland, yeah. uh, which is a major Union field army at that time commanded by William Rosecrans. So he's at the Battle of Chickamauga in September mm-hmm. of 1863. <clears throat> That's the most famous battle at which he's he's you know present and fully involved, but he's there as a staff officer, not as a troop commander. Yeah. Uh, so we kind of alluded to it that he does get elected <clears throat> to the House of Representatives while he's serving in the Army. and. That kind of goes back to the question before of what convinces him to leave the army and go back to Congress. Well, you know that's a that's a good question. He he he. I mean, again, certainly he's an ambitious guy. Sure. He's 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 been in the state senate. He has he's interested in politics. Mm-hmm. He has political ambitions. He and he says, you know, very pointedly in, in in his diary and in his some of his letters that if it was up to him, he would he would go to Congress. Uh, you know, he, he's kind of frustrated with the direction of the war. I've already said, you know, he's frustrated with Lincoln that Lincoln hasn't said publicly, at least in, in until the, until September of 1862, that yes, the war, in addition to being about saving the union is also now about abolishing slavery. Um, so he's frustrated with, you know, feeling like Lincoln's moving too slow on that issue. Um, but he's also very frustrated at, at you know, kind of the professional West Point educated, officers that he feels are are you know leading the union down the wrong path he's you know for example he does not have nice things to say in his diaries about mcclellan <laughs> uh, uh, and, I, as as a lot of I was people say, don't. i've found a lot of people yeah, really don't yeah garfield was not alone in that respect yeah so you know he, he he he's elected to congress and of course he's he's excited about that but he does feel some obligation to the army too sure. um and and in fact at one point gets an audience with lincoln mm-hmm and basically, you know, explains this kind of inner conflict he's having about, should I go to Congress or should I stay in the army? And of course, Lincoln says, 
I have, you know, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but you know, I have more generals than I know what to do with. Uh, what I really need are more reliable Republican votes in Congress. And yeah. so it's really Lincoln, I think, that, that convinces Garfield to go to the army. And he says, Garfield does in his diary, that um, you know, if he really, really was honest with himself, he probably would, would choose to stay in the army. But the president has asked him to do this, and he doesn't feel it's, it's appropriate to consult his own feelings when the president has asked him it's to do once this, again, and yeah, th this is what the country needs. That sense of duty yeah, to your country. Exactly. And, and again, you know, he, he wanted to be in Congress very much, but I think that sense of duty really led him to feel like he should stay in the Army until the president, you know, tells him, no, I really could sure. use you much better in Congress than I could in the field. Well, right now we're going to take a little bit of a break for social media. And when we come back, uh, we'll jump right into the election of 1880 and how we get President Garfield. Okay. Hello everyone, this is Jacob, the host of The History Book, here to remind you that you can find The History Book on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as on our website, www.thehistorybook20.wixsite.com backslash thehistorybook. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Alright, thank you for staying tuned Staying tuned through that short social media break. Uh, we're back uh, talking more about President James Garfield, and speaking of President... Uh, the next question is really, how does Garfield emerge as a candidate for the Republican Party for president in 1880? Well, boy, that's a we could you could do multiple episodes just on <laughs> that. So I'll try to I'll try to I'll try to break it down, <laughs> you know, into as brief an answer as possible. But I mean, really, Garfield is not is not someone that anybody in the Republican Party is looking at as a potential candidate in 1880. Um, he's already been elected, in fact, in, in, in January of 1880, about five months before the Republican National Convention, he's elected to the um, U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. So the Ohio legislature elects him to the Senate. He's not due to take office until early 1881. Mm -hmm. So he has, you know, basically a year left to be in the House of Representatives. One of the people that helped him again, behind the scenes, because he couldn't appear to be overly ambitious, sure. uh, who helped him secure that election to the Senate was John Sherman from mm -hmm. Ohio, a longtime senator himself, the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman, the famous Civil War general. Uh, and Sherman had spent the, pre the, the last four years as Secretary of the Treasury under President Rutherford B. Hayes. So Sherman wanted to be the Republican presidential nominee in 1880 after four years as Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, he uh, saw Garfield as, you know, certainly they were, uh, they were allies in terms of ideology, uh, but also thought, you know, he knew Garfield was very popular in Ohio, and he thought that if, if, you know, he could help make Garfield a senator, then Garfield would in turn help him become the presidential nominee. Good pro quo. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, and so Garfield accepts this, assistance from Sherman, which really is, you know, just kind of having a few words with some people in the Ohio legislature about making Garfield a senator. And he, Garfield's fully aware that what's happening here, right? Sure. He sure. knows that Sherman's doing this. Yes. So he has Garfield's support. Absolutely. Absolutely. Garfield's fully aware that Sherman is, is, is talking him up uh, in, uh, to, to Ohioans. Uh, and, um, and Garfield agrees that, you know, especially, you know, after he's elected to the Senate, he will in fact support Sherman for the presidential nomination in 1880. And then eventually this gets to where Sherman wants Garfield to physically go to Chicago to the Republican convention and 
support Sherman's efforts publicly in Chicago and, in fact, even give the speech nominating Sherman for the nomination. And Garfield, of course, feeling he has to, agrees to all of this. Um, Garfield is knows that Sherman is not going to be the nominee. Sherman is not the guy that, that the Republicans are going to pick. Even Ohioans are not fully behind Sherman. Um, the, the, the person that most people expect to be nominated in 1880 is Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who, of course, has already been president for two terms and yeah. now left for you know four years and now wants to come back and run again in 1880. How, and just out of curiosity, how's Grant's health at this point? I mean... Well, it's, soon after the presidency, doesn't he, his health kind of take a downturn? Uh, you know, the, he he's not. I don't believe at this. You know, he hasn't been diagnosed with cancer or anything like this at this point. At this point. Okay. Um, so his health is still okay, as far as I know. the The real issue for Grant at this point is that he's, you know, of course, he's gone on this this fabulous world tour after his presidency, where he sure. spent a lot of money, and then ends up getting sort of fleeced out of the much most of his personal savings by this very unscrupulous young financial wheeler and dealer who's, uh, I, if I remember correctly, was a friend of Grant, one of Grant's sons. But anyway, mm-hmm. so um, uh, so but it, but as far as health, I believe yeah, Grant was okay at that okay. point. Now, had he managed to be elected in eighteen eighty, you got a problem. Then yeah, he yeah. he he certainly would have his health would not stay good mm-hmm. um but that ended up not being the case so so garfield agrees to go to chicago one to support sherman but also because he garfield is very much in the camp of not wanting to see grant nominated again because there's just a lot of opposition to anyone seeking a third term sure um and that is primarily because you know George Washington it's, who we talked about a minute it's precedent. ago it's the precedent mm-hmm. you know there, there's no constitutional amendment at that point that says you can't run for a third term no one at that point had ever tried it and people like Garfield did not think it was appropriate two terms is enough you've done you know you now you follow the example of Washington and you you know peacefully transfer power to go the home. to your successor <laughs> and you go home and um, so Garfield goes to the Republican convention in Chicago to support Sherman, but also to oppose the third term. Garfield knows that there have been a few people whispering in the background that he, Garfield, may potentially be a, comprom- a good choice as a compromise candidate because a lot of people are seeing the writing on the wall here thinking that Grant is not going to be able to be nominated. There's too much opposition to the third term. Um, and none of the other people who are sort of known to be interested in being nominated, John Sherman being one of those, the other major one being James Blaine, who's a, a senator from the state of Maine at that point. Um, there's a lot of feeling that none of these guys are going to have enough support at the convention to, to amass the number of delegates they need to be nominated. And so, you know, this idea that Garfield was this complete dark horse that no one in a million years had ever guessed, that's a little overblown yeah. because there were some people talking. And Garfield was aware, and again, being a, a good and an ambitious politician, Garfield didn't tamp that down. You know, he was fine with people talking about him. Yeah. But I do genuinely believe that Garfield did not think anything was going to come of this in 1880. Mm-hmm. Um, because if he had... Because he was so in tune with what the, the social conventions were and the political conventions uh, and he norms of the time, the he would never have gone near that convention if yeah. he really thought there was a chance of that. He was happy to go – well, not happy. He really didn't want to go, but he was. He knew he was obligated to go for Sherman. Um, he was also wanting to be there so that he could help 
uh, the the anti third term movement to keep yeah. Grant from getting another another well just to kind nomination. of uh, relate it back to mm-hmm. an episode I I've done before on the eighteen sixty convention. Uh, Lincoln doesn't go to the convention either. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's back in Illinois. He's getting reports back from his friends telling him, "Yeah, we promised this to this guy," and he's basically saying, "Please stop." Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and none of the major candidates in 1880 were there either. Not Grant, not Blaine, not Sherman. They're all you know either at home or in Washington yep. or wherever. So Garfield being there to me is one indication that he, he really genuinely didn't think anything was going to come of this. But when, um, when none of those – in fact, what hap- a lot of people predicted did happen, that the, the, the convention suddenly was thrown into chaos because they didn't have a candidate and they didn't have anyone who – any of those three major candidates who could get enough votes, they start looking for this compromise nominee. And then through over the next couple of days, as they go through ballot after ballot after ballot after ballot, they, they're coming up with the same results. And how, then finally, how many ballots does it take to get? 36. Wow. Uh, it was, Garfield was nominated on the 36th ballot. Mm. There, was, there was one or two people who kept throwing Garfield's name out as, as the polling went on. Uh, and then finally on the 34th ballot, uh, Garfield got 50 votes mm. and suddenly people are sitting up and paying attention that, wait a minute, this may be our opportunity to get a compromise nominee that we're all comfortable with. Mm. Even if we don't necessarily agree with him on everything, everybody likes him. Everybody thinks he's competent and, and certainly thinks he could, He'll do. he could carry the party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's really what a compromise candidate is, is somebody that, okay, well, He's not our first, second, or third choice, but he's acceptable to everyone. He could win. He could win, yes. And, um, and, and that's really what happened. So on that 34th ballot, he gets 50 votes, and then by the 36th ballot, he's nominated. Mm-hmm. And he's shocked, of course, uh, and he's, he actually makes a point of trying to um, get the, the president of the convention to stop, you know, saying, hey, I didn't sign off on this, basically. And um, I think, you know, people were desperate to be done with this. Uh, they'd been there for days. Ballots, I would hope so. Yeah, they'd been there for days. They'd been there longer than they planned to be there. So I think that played into it. But I also think people saw Garfield as exactly what we said a minute ago, which is, okay, you know, obviously he wasn't our first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. Mm-hmm. But he's acceptable to all factions of the party. And there was a lot of factionalism in the Republican party at that point, And we think he can win. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Garfield's running mate, Chester, mm-hmm. Chester Arthur. Uh, how does he become nominated for vice president? Is there well, something Ar- similar that happens? Is Arthur actually there? Arthur, Arthur was there. Uh, he was there. Um, Arthur is, is is from the complete opposite side of the party as Garfield. So, mm. you know, we have the stalwarts and the half-breeds at this point, and really they're not that far apart on issues. The the thing the things that really separate them are um ideas about civil service reform and the real the main really the main issue is is the issue of the third term for Grant. Yeah. Uh the stalwarts, the the really die-hard Grant people are guys like Roscoe Conkling, uh, John Logan, si- uh, uh, Donald Cameron, and and Chester A. Arthur, who, uh, oh, by the way, was at one point under the Hayes administration, the collector of the Port of New York, the most lucrative patronage job in the entire country, yeah. and he got fired for corruption <laughs> by Hayes. So, you know, Arthur is no... To get no, fired from that job. Yeah. Arthur cool. is no fan of 
the half-breed yeah. faction that you know Garfield kind of gets associated with here because he opposes the third term. Garfield's not really, frankly, at this point, all that interested in civil service reform. He yeah. gets there certainly after he becomes president-elect, but at this point, eh, you know, Garfield's pretty lukewarm on that issue. He's uh, he's considered a half-breed. Garfield is because of opposition to the third term. Yeah. Arthur. And Garfield, as I said, are from complete opposite ends of the party. So what they're trying to do by putting Garfield on the – or I mean Arthur rather on the ticket is just create some unity yeah. in the party and to basically give sort of an acknowledgement to that faction, to that stalwart faction. Now, you know, Arthur had never held any elective office. <laughs> he'd been the collector of the Port of New York. Yeah. He'd been in, you know, in some positions in New York, but nothing he'd ever actually been elected to. And – when they offered him the spot on the vice presidential ticket, he went to Conkling, who who was kind of his his benefactor, his patron saint, really. Um, who you know Arthur owed his entire career really to the patronage of of Conkling, and he told Conkling that they um, that they had offered him the vice president, and Conkling told him to drop it like a hot shoe out of the forge. In other words, don't take it. Yeah. And 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 Arthur, to his credit, said. This is a higher honor than I ever thought I could possibly attain. I'm going to take it. Yeah. So that's how Arthur ends up. Well, with the always... it's really it's really just kind of a, a an acknowledgement yeah. of of that faction of the party and trying to bring the party back together. Well, that I, I mean, for Conkling to say that, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm sure you've heard the. I think it's from Lyndon uh, Johnson where he says the vice presidency isn't worth a piss in the bucket. Yeah, yeah. Well, something, I think John like Adams, I think, said something similar. Oh, yeah. Uh, John Adams absolutely. Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. Uh, you know, many vice presidents have said – and this is before the more modern vice presidency yeah. like we see today where we see vice presidents who are very involved and are really uh-huh. you know, partners and teammates really for, for the president. But – um, you know, and Lyndon Johnson's a great example. Because in mean, all reality, the vice presidency has absolutely no power. Other than they get to break ties. Constitutionally, that's, yep, that's that's true. Really I mean, all what you do. just said, um, and you know, Lyndon Johnson is sort of the, the the ultimate example of you know this guy's put on the ticket for one reason, and that's for votes, yeah. and that's uh, you know to bring Texas and to, to bring the South along for Kennedy in 1960. Um, you know, New York is, and, and Arthur's a New Yorker. And New York is going. Everyone knows New York is going to be the critical state in 1880. Sure. So there's some geographic interest there. There is some interesting scholarship out there today. Recent scholarship uh, that that suggests uh, that you know really geographic considerations with vice presidential candidates is is m- very far overblown. Yeah. And that's uh, by uh, a guy's name Copco and 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 Devine, um, who've written some books on you know vice presidential uh, selections. Uh, be you know, and, and this idea that geographic balance is is really overblown. Well, but at that of, time, it was con- it was taken very seriously. Yeah, and this whole idea of appeasing you know the other faction in mm-hmm. your party, it's not the first time this happens. No, of course in not. presidential election. I mean, even looking, I know I go back to this a lot, but Lincoln choose getting rid of Hamlin and going with Johnson. Yeah, he doesn't pick Johnson because Johnson's a really great candidate. I mean, he shows up to the inauguration drunk. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, he picks he picks Johnson he picks, because it's a great example of u- national yeah. unity. The Republican Party actually uh, changes its name yeah. there for the that. Union. That, yeah, yeah, the union. Yeah, the union party. You know, and Johnson, of course, is everything Lincoln's not. He's a Democrat. He's yeah. a Southerner. 
he's a white supremacist. <laughs> yeah. And imagine how different American history might have been had Lincoln decided to keep Hamlin oh, yeah. in, in 1860. Yeah. Because Hamlin, frankly, probably would have been a strong, a, a, a decent president because he was an abolitionist. He was, of course, a northerner from Maine, and, and he he was a much, he was ideologically much more in line with Abraham Lincoln than Andrew Johnson. Yeah. But of course, again, hey, the vice presidency is not that important, right? Well, until it is. But you also don't get those cool stories about Hamlin that you get at Johnson. Well, true. Yeah. He's touring around Tennessee and comparing giving, himself to Jesus Christ. Yeah, giving the speeches, stuff. saying, yeah. you know, don't secede. And then at one point, he's getting uh, death threats and. He goes to give a speech and he smacks a revolver on the right, podium to right. say, "Yeah, it's yeah, coming. yeah." I mean, it, but I mean, imagine how much better American history might have been for, say, you know, African Americans. Yeah. If if Andrew Johnson had never become president. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, because he just tried to basically completely unravel protections for for the formerly enslaved and all this. So anyway, but yeah, that's... but anyway, <laughs> so that's but those are and, and Chester Arthur too. Those are great examples of. The vice presidency doesn't matter until it does, mm-hmm. and and no one in a million years ever guessed it would matter that Andrew Johnson was vice president, yeah. or that Chester A. Arthur was vice president. Yep. Uh, you know, or look at Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. You know, the, the the whole reason they made Theodore Roosevelt vice president was to get him out of New York because he was driving <laughs> the Republican establishment in, and Democrats, yeah. of course, in New York, absolutely bonkers. Yeah. So hey, you know what? Tuck him away in this incredibly unimportant job. Oh, but wait, there's a complication, which is some lunatic shoots McKinley. <laughs> yeah, they don't uh, factor in the whole fact that Robert Todd Lincoln tends to be around all these assassinations for some reason. Yeah, you know, that that's a little overblown, too, I think. Yeah. You know, uh, he was not there at Ford's Theater. He was there when Garfield was shot. Yeah. And, 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 and he Wasn't was... he leaving as the as Gutierrez walks in? No, actually, uh, Lincoln was meeting... Garfield at the station. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Garfield and Blaine arrive at the the train station, and and Robert Lincoln is is about forty or fifty feet away, walking towards them to oh, speak okay. with them when Guiteau, uh, you know, approaches and, and shoots Garfield. But he, but Robert Lincoln was not at Ford's Theater. He was there when when his father died. Yeah, like nine hours later. And contrary to popular belief, he was not in Buffalo when when McKinley was shot. Yeah, he I was know he on was, his way. Yeah, to he was Buffalo. invited, but he wasn't. He was on the train coming to Buffalo. Yeah, and so when he arrived, he was informed yeah. the president has been shot, and then he actually was taken to see McKinley. Yeah, but he wasn't. You know, he wasn't there when when McKinley when when McKinley yeah, was shot. because that was his whole concern with you know going to the. Uh, ribbon cutting ceremony for the Lincoln, Lincoln Memorial, Memorial of yeah well, he, the president's going to be there do I really want to be there too he had this great line at one point where you know he said that um uh they they didn't they shouldn't invite him to things like this anymore because uh, there's a certain fatality yeah. involved with presidential events. When yeah, I ironically enough, the pre- yeah. President Harding ends up passing away. Yeah, Harding then dies. You know, what, yeah. what a year over little over a year later. So yeah, anyway, it, it, that's it's just a little bit. You could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, there's on, a little bit of a weird coincidence with Roberts for sure. Life for sure. Um, so Garfield's the candidate for Republican Party. Uh, the presidential election comes. Um, How's he really able to defeat General Winfield Scott, who's also another Civil War general? Well, it's Winfield Scott Hancock. Hancock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Han- Hancock. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Um, so, yeah, Winfield Scott Hancock, who is still on active duty in the Army, um, who is a lifelong Democrat, mm-hmm. 
um, but certainly is not someone that the Republicans can really beat over the head with disloyalty. Yeah. Um, you know, the Republicans had, had made a lot of, a lot of hay in the years since the Civil War, um, sort of what they called waving the bloody shirt, this idea of, you know, Republicans being able to just kind of label Democrats as, you know, the party of secession, yeah. the party of slavery, the party that, that, that killed Abraham Lincoln and the party that that put 300,000 northern soldiers in their graves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Republicans have almost used this as like a crutch almost that any election where they think they're not doing well or or or, or that they, you know, people need to be reminded. Just they can wave the bloody shirt the, and, and people almost maybe yeah. out, of, mm-hmm. out of guilt or obligation decide to support the Republican candidate. You can't wave that bloody shirt at Winfield Scott Hancock because this is a guy who went to West Point. Mm-hmm. He fought in the Mexican-American War. He fought in the Civil War. He's bl- literally bled. I mean, he was almost killed at Gettysburg. Yeah. Um, he's literally bled for for, for the Union. Uh-huh. And uh, he, so he's, he's a formidable opponent for Garfield. What Hancock doesn't have is any kind of political record. Yeah. So he doesn't have any record of speeches that the Republicans can really parse and 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 criticize. You know, he's 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 navigated army politics pretty well, but you know, elective poli- national politics are a whole different ballgame. Oh, yeah. And so he doesn't have any record for people to to criticize. But he also doesn't have any record to say you know this is what he really stands for either. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it, the Republicans cannot in 1880 do what they've always done. It, at, which is to just label him as a as a as a traitor yeah. and, and as a secessionist because clearly he's not that and um, so all you know ultimately I think Garfield is one of in 1880 really one of the few really national Republicans that's still really talking a lot about civil rights mm-hmm. and he's still trying to hold people accountable including his own party including the Republicans um, he's really trying to still hold the Republicans to task to continue to, to do more for the formerly enslaved. I, you know, I'd like to think that that's why he, he was able to win that election. Garfield wins a very narrow, you know, yeah. popular vote. Yes. I mean, he only wins by 10,000 votes or less out of about 9 million votes cast. Um, the, the, the electoral college victory is, is substantial, but, but the popular vote margin is very thin. Um, I'd like, excuse me, <clears throat> I'd like to think that's, why Garfield is able to win, but you know, is because the Republicans or he Garfield has a better vision for the future of the country. Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think it really came down to there were just enough people who still really worried about the consequences of turning the party over to the Democrat, turning the country over to a Democratic president, to turning the party over to the rebels, as they, as they, they uh, Republicans like to say. Um, so I, I think it was just maybe the last really kind of grasp of Democrats are dangerous because they opposed uh, they opposed uh, the abolition of slavery. Yeah. They opposed the union, even though Hancock himself clearly is not one of those guys. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest the biggest liability that Hancock has as a candidate in 1880. It's not himself personally. It's the party that he's running yeah. on. But you know he he loses very very narrowly to Garfield to his credit accepts that okay I I gave it my best I I ran and I lost no problem um, but then four years later we do get a Democrat elected president and that's Grover Cleveland yeah so 
Cleveland becomes, just four years after Garfield wins election, Cleveland becomes the first Democrat elected to the presidency since James Buchanan. Yeah. You know, we have Andrew Johnson in there who technically was a Democrat, but he wasn't elected president. He became president yeah, after yeah. Lincoln's death. So, um, so you know, I, th- I think 1880 maybe is that la- that last real kind of um, gasp of the bloody, shirt. Of the bloody mm-hmm. shirt, even though, again, you couldn't really wave that at Winfield Scott Hancock. Yeah. Uh, so the one thing that I've kind of seen a lot in my research, and I think this is really cool, is the front porch policy. The front porch campaign. Yeah, yeah the front sure. porch mm-hmm. campaign. Can you explain a little bit of how, how that really works? Sure, yeah. Well, so, yeah, James Garfield ran the, the nation's first ever front porch presidential campaign from our property right here in Mentor, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was his, you know, this is his home and his farm. And, you know, the, the again, Garfield is a, is a product of his time. And the conventions of that time said you don't go out and campaign for yourself when you're running for president. You stay home. You don't talk to anybody. You don't write any letters. You don't give any speeches. You don't do any of that stuff um, because you don't want to appear overtly ambitious for the office. And so people, you know, just unexpectedly started showing up here uh, to see Garfield and to, you know, get an idea of who he was and, and what was he all about. And, you know, Garfield being a good politician and also being an outgoing personality that we, like we talked about earlier, um, you know, just feels like it's only proper that he start talking to these people and at least acknowledging that they've come to see him. And that then eventually becomes him giving these brief speeches from the front porch of the house. Uh, and then that kind of morphs into what we now think of as the front porch style of campaigning where yeah. a candidate stays home and people come to the candidate, yeah. Uh, and 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 he he and I say he because of course they're all men at this point. Uh, he addresses them from you know the 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 literal or metaphorical front porch <laughs> of the house because some of these guys probably didn't have you know literal front porches. Um, and you know it's important to note that the, the speeches Garfield is giving in 1880 in in this front porch campaign they are not the speeches you expect to hear from candidates today. He's not talking about why I should be elected over this other person or you know what I intend to do about our foreign policy or you know this policy or that policy. Um, he's really just talking more about the history of the Republican Party and why the party should be retained. In, so it's the in idea power. of really talking more about principles and less about the policies. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and he also is very good at sort of tailoring his remarks to the groups that are there to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, uh, for example, a group of German immigrants come. He actually speaks to them in German uh, because he spoke several languages. You know, yeah. he was a classically trained scholar. And um, we think that that was one of maybe the first instances ever of a candidate campaigning in a foreign language. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he hosts businessmen from Indiana. He hosts these women, w- women's groups from Cleveland. Um, he very notably hosts uh, the uh, Fisk Jubilee Singers from Fisk University, which is a, an all-African-American uh, college in, in, in Nashville, which is mm-hmm. still in existence today. So he, uh, you know, the, the Fisk Jubilee Singers are a singing group that were, you know, part of Fisk University, still are, and they came and sang for him, and he, um, you know, he, he, he addressed them after they sang. Um, he addressed groups of Civil War veterans, white and black, who came mm-hmm. here to see him. Uh, he addressed groups of first-time voters, and Gar- they had these Garfield and Arthur clubs. He talked to them when they came. So it was really this wide, uh, you know, gr- different types of, of people and, and groups. It's a that diverse would come people. Here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a diverse up to his group front of people. Porch. Yeah. And, 
and he again he he he's very good at sort of tailoring what he's saying to yeah. the groups that he's speaking to. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, so right now we're gonna take another short break to hear from one of our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the assassination and his legacy after he's uh, gone from office. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning into that short social media break, or actually it was the ad break. Got to pay the bills. Uh, so right now we're going to talk a little bit about the assassination, sort of the legacy of President James Garfield. So um, uh, tell us a little bit about how this assassination really plays out, of, of what happens. Well, there's a couple things to consider here. First off, this 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 man, Charles Gateau, is who is the guy that shoots Garfield, is... is unquestionably mentally unstable absolutely yep. so we have to you know make sure that we say that that there's yes there's some politics involved here but uh mental illness is is also very much involved here um so Gateau, charles Gateau, uh considers himself a republican um he considers himself a stalwart republican he had favored grant for the third for a third term um he also is somebody who has uh has not had a lot of luck in life <laughs> To say the least, he's tried a number of different things. None of them have been successful. He's tried the ministry. He's tried politics. He's tried being a lawyer. Um, he just has not managed to, to, to find any success in life. Um, and he, he was very interested in politics and, um, you know, really went to, he went to New York uh, during the 1880 campaign, just kind of hung out at Republican headquarters in New York City. And was you know viewed as kind of a nuisance, but no 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 real danger to anyone. Boy, um, were they wrong? Yeah, no kidding. Um, so then, after Garfield wins the election, Guiteau becomes convinced that he Guiteau was extremely important to Garfield's victory. And and again, you know, there's some mental, mental illness, illness here, <laughs> uh, and so he has these. You know, I think he was. You know, I I'm not a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, obviously, but I think you know we would probably think of him as having this narcissistic. Person, these narcissistic personality traits, these delusions of grandeur, you know, sure. he, he views himself as the center of the universe. And, and so yeah, that plays out in his trial a little bit. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> he's convinced that he, he was instrumental to Garfield's victory, and he convinces himself that because of how important he was to Garfield's victory, he's entitled to a job. Again, we're dealing with the patronage the system, system here, the spoil system. So he goes to Washington after Garfield becomes president, and he basically starts showing up at the White House— um, starts, you know, following Garfield around D.C. He follows James Blaine around D.C. for a while, uh, and, and and is convinced that he is entitled to to a reward for. Does his, Garfield speak his to him before? Yes, at one point, Gateau did actually get an audience with Garfield in the White House, mm -hmm. and you know, there he's because at that time it's really easy to just kind of show up and knock on the door. Yes, absolutely, and really, this is the thing that that made Garfield start to really come around on civil service reform was after he became president-elect, before he's even inaugurated, people started showing up here yeah. in Mentor um, to try to get an audience with him and, and you know, tell him about their qualifications for whatever job it is that they wanted. He found this extremely annoying and, and disturbing. Garfield did. It is really annoying. Yes. and but, but, again, the social conventions of the time said he had to see these people. It yep. was part of what he was supposed to do as president-elect and then as president. So then when he becomes president, he, he several hours every day has to spend just 
greeting these people and 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 trying to hear their their argument for why they should be the postmaster of Mentor Ohio or whatever job it is that they want. In the case of Charles Guiteau, he wants to be a, a the equivalent of what we would think of today as like an ambassador. He wants to be the American consul to uh, first Vienna and then eventually decides that he would accept Paris as well. I mean, you know, these are major, <laughs> major federal government positions. Now, Guiteau has... I just got to laugh at that a yeah, little bit. Sure. Of, he goes from, you know, oh, yeah, I want to be ambassador to Vienna to, you know what? I'll accept Paris. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's you know, he and really again, didn't downgrade much at all no, there. <laughs> certainly not, and, and and again, you know, we do have to emphasize the the role that mental illness of plays course, in all yeah. this as well. Uh, but um, he just, you know, he's a he's a he's a stalwart Republican, and this is his just reward for, in his mind, helping Garfield become president. And he has no qualifications for this, no experience. It is clearly not going to to to, to happen. And um, he does, as at one point, get an audience with Garfield in the White House, and and you know he's sort of, I guess you would say, starstruck that he's standing in the room with the president, and he really can't, doesn't manage to say very much, until he's you know ushered back out like everybody else is, um, and then he actually for a while he he does follow Garfield around, uh, he sort of stalks, I guess you would say, the president of the United States, um, and then does the same with James Blaine, who has become Garfield's Secretary of State. And then finally, at one point, Blaine is so tired of seeing this guy and having this guy, Guiteau, talk to him about, about this, Blaine just explodes. And this happens inside the State Department building and just finally tells him, you're not going – this is not going to happen for you. I don't want to hear any more about it. Please leave me alone. And then at that point, Guiteau switches from feeling entitled to some kind of position to – thinking that, okay, Garfield now is dangerous because he's going to get rid of the spoils system, which is, in his mind, a, a very important part of how American politics works. Sure. And therefore, the logical thing to do in Guiteau's mind is to kill Garfield and make Chester A. Arthur president because, remember, Arthur is from the stalwart wing of the party. He's an acolyte of Roscoe Conkling. Arthur can be trusted to keep the spoils system in place. Mm -hmm. So this is when Guiteau really hatches this plot in his mind to kill Garfield. And he says, I have nothing personal against Garfield, but his death is a political necessity. And so um, he he buys a, a an English Bulldog 44 caliber revolver and goes down by the Potomac River and teaches himself to shoot it and starts plotting when he's going to assassinate the President of the United States. And that, that day finally comes on July 2nd, 1881, when he, you know, knows that Garfield is going to be coming into the Baltimore and Potomac train station in Washington, uh, and he basically waits there. And when Garfield walks in, he shoots Garfield in the back. Mm -hmm. hmm. So uh, he's quickly captured, arrested. Doesn't really make much of an yeah, effort to just, get away. They grab him. And yeah, he. he there's, take a, him to there's a DC police officer right there. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, Guiteau, you know, kind of makes a half-hearted effort to get away, but nothing substantial. And and the officer grabs him, and and Guiteau just says, "I did it. I'll go to jail for it. Arthur will be president." Yeah. He is admitting, "Yes, I shot 
the president, and and I did it. It's not really like he had to admit it. We saw everybody saw him do it. Yeah, Uh, he's did in the middle of a public train station. Yeah, he's freely admitting, and and he's saying why he did it. And again, in his mind, which is very much unstable, um, this makes perfect sense to him. Yeah, and in his mind, he's going to be hailed as a hero for this. Mm -hmm. He's going, you know, he's going to to be Arthur once he becomes president will pardon him. And will probably give him the job that he wants, which is, again, to be consul to Vienna or Paris. Uh, again, we're dealing with a very diseased mind yeah. here. Clearly um, mental illnesses. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Multiple, so, you know, so what I always say is, you know, when people ask why was Garfield killed, my response is always, well, mental, mental illness, illness and mm-hmm. politics. So, yeah. you know, these two things kind of work together. Um, and they don't work out good. They, no, no, it's a, it's they a very, never do. it doesn't, it's not a good, uh, you know, I mean, you could say the same thing, you know, somebody like Hinckley, for example, who, you yeah. know, has these delusions about Jodie Foster and, and therefore, you know, shooting President Reagan. Um, it, it's the same idea here with Guiteau. He's, he's, yeah. he's convinced that, that he's doing the right thing. He's There's always the a bit of that favor. narcissism in it. Too. Sure. There, there would I mean, have to be. I mean, there was with Booth of, you know, yeah. I'm going to shoot Lincoln and be held as a uh, hero. Avenge the, the South. South. Which, of course, you know, ironically enough, was the worst possible thing yeah, that could have happened to the yeah. South was Lincoln's death. And I think, you know, you could say Lee Harvey Oswald had some of this, too, that was kind of like Guiteau, you know, just hadn't had much luck in life and was yeah. kind of viewed as a kind of a loser, I guess, to use a modern term. And, you know, this was going to be something he would be he would be known for, which yeah. was killing the president. And, and you know, ironically, unfortunately, he was right about known that. for it. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, the one sort of thing that didn't happen was that Garfield didn't die. I mean, he didn't die of the bullet wounds. Yes, he was severely injured, obviously, by being shot in the back by Gateau, but he doesn't die. He he's actually carried back to the White House, and then, of course, we have this this additional tragic element to Garfield's story, which is the medical care yeah. uh, that he received, which was just so poor, um, and ultimately is what kills him. You know, it's, it, it's infection. infection. Yeah, he doesn't die of bullet wounds. He dies eighty days later and on one September nineteenth of infection. Alexander Graham Bell comes in with the rudimentary metal detector. True. And, yes. Uh, yeah. What what he called an induction balance. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell created this. It was yeah. It was exactly what you and said. I'm going to guess it didn't work. It it did not work. But um, you know, a lot of people refer to uh, the fact that the um, the bed had metal springs, which may be true. Um, but I think the other you know even more importantly than that, in terms of why the induction balance that that Bell created did not work was. The, the the head physician, who was a guy named Willard Bliss, uh, Dr. Bliss, uh, that was caring for Garfield, was so – also a bit narcissistic, clearly uh, – was, was absolutely convinced that he knew where the bullet was. And he would therefore only let Bell examine the side of the body that he, Bliss, thought, thought the, the, that, that the, the bullet was located. Mm-hmm. And then, of course – you know, Bliss yeah. is obsessed with finding this bullet, and that's why he he for eighty days straight days, you know, continues to probe Garfield's wounds with his dirty fingers and yeah. and his dirty instruments because, of course, he doesn't believe in the existence of germs. You know, germ theory—that's all for European doctors. That's not for American doctors. Um, and he, you know, he and his team are the ones that eventually infect Garfield, and that's yeah. what kills him. And oh, by the way, when when Garfield does finally die after eighty days of absolute misery and and pain. Uh, and wasting away, you know, losing almost a hundred pounds, um, 
they they do an autopsy and find out that the bullet, the in fact, on was side. on the other side. Yeah. So Bliss was just completely wrong about everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Garfield, that's that's an additional part of Garfield's tragedy is he doesn't die right away. He, yeah. he lingers and basically wastes away. And, As he's and lingering, is he... I mean, he's just there. He's not doing anything for the presidency. It's, he really can't do anything. Is, I mean, is Arthur now president? No. Or do they wait until he dies? The country basically is is somewhat, you know, leaderless for those 80 days. Mm. So Garfield is, you know, flat on his back, can't do anything. I think the only official act, if I remember correctly, the only official act that he he does during that time is he signs an extradition order. Um, he, you know, Garfield, who's written volumes and volumes and volumes of diaries over the years and thousands and thousands and thousands Only of letters writes, writes one letter during this entire period and that's to his mother to tell mm-hmm. her not to worry he's going to be fine um which of course it ends up not being true um so no he he he's really can't do much of anything official yeah. uh as president and arthur is is in new york and is afraid to come to Washington because he doesn't want to appear to be kind of trying to swoop in and, and seize yeah. power. Well, and, especially when the man that's assassinating him is saying, I want you as president because you're going to give me what I want. Exactly. Well, I don't want to look like I'm a part of this wide conspiracy. And that Arthur was and... petrified that people would view him this way. Yeah. I mean, I the think the same Ar- way they view Johnson in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah. I think Arthur is, is, is a fundamentally decent man, Jester yeah. Arthur. And, you know, he obviously had nothing to do with this, uh, yeah. nor did any other stalwart Republican, by the way, as awful as Roscoe Conkling was as a person, he had no involvement in this. Yeah. He didn't, you know, had no intent to kill Garfield. Um, so Arthur is, stays in New York kind of almost like in hiding because he's so afraid if he comes to D.C., it's going to seem like, you know, oh, maybe he was part of this whole thing or, oh, you know, he's coming in to sort of swoop in and take power. So, no, really, the guy who's running the country at this point is Joseph Stanley Brown, who is James Garfield's personal secretary, who's a guy who's in his late 20s, who is really kind of running the White House. You know, I would, I would liken him to sort of a modern White House chief of staff. Yeah. Um, he's the one that's really kind of running the country at this point. Well, I mean, this sort of happens again later on and when Woodrow Wilson has his stroke. Right, yeah. His Wilson wife has is a basically stroke. running the White House and not letting anyone else in that bedroom. Yes, because he's okay, he's signing them, but in reality, it's probably her signing yeah, she, it for him. She, she and I think a couple of his closest sort of advisors and maybe a couple of cabinet secretaries were really kind of running the yeah. country after that stroke because yeah. Wilson was not able to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a good, it's a good you know... Uh, you know, corollary there, I guess you would say. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, Joseph, Joseph Stanley Brown is really the guy that's kind of trying to keep mm-hmm. the government functioning at that point. And again, you're talking about one lone man, you know, in his early t- or in his late twenties is running the whole is place. basically running the whole place because yeah. the president can't do anything because he's been shot. And now he's enduring this, you know, atrocious and the vice president is so scared to death that he's hiding in New exactly. York. Exactly. And the vice president is not in town. Yeah. <laughs> and he's afraid to come to town because he doesn't want people to think he had anything to do with it. And I understand oh, Arthur's yeah. position there. Yeah. I, I feel terrible for Arthur in this case. And I think Arthur is a guy who deserves to be a little better appreciated and remembered than, than he is. I mean, yeah. he, he, like Garfield, unfortunately, is kind of viewed as this kind of inconsequential you know, yeah. post Civil War president and, and who's really unimportant. I think we get a, not the we'll, case. I mean, we'll get into a little bit okay, of the sure. idea of the, the legacy after office. Because uh, I, I, I really do agree with you on mm-hmm. that. Uh, that's 
in my opinion, it's kind of how he's looked at sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kind of move on to actually what's my first question in the segment <laughs> of uh, so Garfield's assassin. Uh, obviously, there's mental illness at play there. But during his trial, it really sort of turns into a spectacle of, uh, I think at one point he says, I'm going to try and run for president. Uh, there's other things he says. He defends, he go. you know, he, he fires defends, his lawyer. Yeah, and, and who, defends himself. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, by the way, his lawyer, his, his, his initial lawyer is his former brother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but he fires his lawyer and defends himself. And, and, and you know, I think one of the, the most, one of the few really sort of, lucid things that that Gateau ever said was at the trial when he argued as it turned out correctly that it was really the the doctors who had killed Garfield and, yeah. and he makes the statement oh I only shot him the yeah. doctors killed him yeah well you got kind of a chicken and the egg thing yeah. going on there but still you know as it turned out yeah he, he in that case he's actually right it wasn't the you know if Garfield had just been left alone to heal he probably would have been okay he would have been okay mm-hmm. Um, but or, you he, know, wash your hands. Yeah, well, yeah. That's a good statement for now, too. Yeah. Wash your hands, everybody. Yeah, in the era of COVID, that is wash your most hands. definitely something people need to Or when to you're remember. trying to dig bullets out of somebody's body, yeah. wash your hands. But, uh, but you know, Gar- Gateau did make that argument at, at mm-hmm. the trial. And, you know, I got to be honest that in this, you know, in in, in our era, I, I don't think there's any he way have been Gateau executed. would not have been found guilty. He would have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, that's, he, that's kind he, of the question is why doesn't yeah. he plead insanity? I can't answer that. I don't know. It, Does he? Uh, and, there certainly was a temporary insanity defense at that point yeah. uh, that had been used successfully in well, the I think United we kinda, States. I mean, just not to answer my own question, but yeah. I think we hit on it a little bit of that sort of idea of the narcissism. Sure. Of why would I plead insanity? I didn't do anything wrong. Right. Yeah, I've done the country a favor. Why, yeah. why would I? Why would I plead insanity? And that, and that may be the answer that he just he he held to his to his feeling that he had done the right thing that he had, and he was convinced he'd be found not guilty. He was convinced he'd be hailed as a hero. He was convinced yeah. he'd be released, and that Arthur would give him a job. Um, again, very delusional, obviously, but you know. Fast forward a hundred years, and of course President Reagan gets shot, and Hinckley, you know, has all of this obvious mental illness. Um, he's found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he's sentenced to, you know, he spends three plus decades in a, in a, in a mental facility. Yeah, he's out now. Yeah, uh, you know, he's no longer in 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 custody. I mean, I'm sure they keep tabs on him, obviously. I would hope so. <laughs> but he, he's now, you know, probably into his sixties or seventies now. Yeah. I would guess. Yeah. Um, and and doesn't. You know, you know, has is no longer incarcerated or is no longer in, in custody. Well, just to so. sort of uh, juxtapose, you know, McKinley and Garfield's assassination. Uh, McKinley's assassin, uh, the name I'm blanking on the Zolgosh. name. Zolgosh. Yes. Or Zolgosh, I've heard it pronounced both yeah. ways, yeah. He's quickly tried, executed, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> that and doesn't happen with Garfield. No, and in fact, it's a, it's a good parallel that you draw there because um, the reason that he is... Sholgosh is tried so quickly after shooting McKinley is exactly because of Charles Gateau, mm-hmm. because prosecutors saw what a tr- what a just a circus Gateau's trial turned into in 1881-82. And they basically gave him his own platform and said, here, say whatever you want right. to say. It's really, I mean, I looked at it as sort of uh, the trial of John Brown after the raid at Harper's Ferry. You just gave him his own platform and let mm-hmm. him say whatever he wanted to say. Obviously a very different sure, situation, sure. but in that sort of way of 
when you extend this idea of the trial, mm-hmm. you're giving somebody that clearly has mental illness problems, mm-hmm. um, if not multiple, and just gave them their own platform to say whatever they want to say. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what they wanted to avoid with Sholgosh after the, the death of McKinley. They, they, they made a very conscious decision. We are going to try this guy very quickly, mm-hmm. and if he's found guilty, we're going to get rid of him very quickly. And that's exactly what they did yeah. to the point where – you know, McKinley is shot on September 6th. He dies on September 14th. Jolgosh goes on trial almost immediately, and he's executed on October 29th. Yeah. I mean, he's executed about six weeks after McKinley dies. That's yeah. how fast they work. What's the time period between Garfield's assassination and execution of So Guiteau shoots Guiteau. Garfield on um, July 2nd, 1881, goes on trial in November of 1881. The trial concludes with a guilty verdict in January of 1882, and Gateau is executed on June 30th, 1882, and two years shy of one year after shooting Garfield. And Garfield dies— or two days shy, excuse me, of one year after shooting Garfield. Is Garfield alive while the trial is going on at no, all? No, Garfield died on September 19th. Okay, okay. So he died— He dies uh, before the trial starts. He dies before the trial starts, yep. Mm. Okay. Um, so I think we touched on it a little bit, but how does the fact that Garfield was assassinated really contribute to his legacy— well, unfortunately, I think that is his legacy, yeah. uh, at, le- at least in the minds of a lot of people. Obviously, we don't feel that way here. Um, you know, we, we think, you know, Garfield lived for 49 years. He was a very young man when he died. He was just too much shy of his 50th birthday when he died. Um, he, he accomplished a lot. You know, he, he did a lot of great things as a congressman and, and you know, was a soldier and, and was a great scholar. Um, so, you know, in, he, when people come here to our site... You know, we have a lot of things that we'd much rather talk about than his death. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it I get think... Ri- get rid of that stigmatism of it's not just about the assassination. Right, it's exactly. It's everything else. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, look, obviously people ask us about it, and of course we we t- tell them about sure. it, sure. I mean, I asked about it. Well, yeah, and, 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 you know, it's obviously, you know, part of the story. Yeah. Um, it's not the whole story. Of course. But I think in the minds of a lot of people, first of all, in the minds of the general public, I think, you know, and I'm obviously generalizing here to, to, to a large degree, but, you know, I think people view the – people have viewed the presidency as kind of a black hole uh, for, for years, uh, mm-hmm. the, for the years between really Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt. These, none of these guys were important. They're all, they all have beards. They all look the same. You can't even tell them apart. Ugh, none of them really matter. It's that the great much. era of facial hair in the presidency. Yeah, I know. They should bring it back. Make, I agree. Make you know, beards should be required for well, for you know, obviously we would waive that requirement for a female president if we of course, if, yeah. if we if we get one. So wonder, anyway, um, but but yeah, I, I think that you know the the fact that Garfield is president so briefly, um, the assassination really does become his legacy, and yeah. and. And, you know, we certainly are trying to change that here, I, th- I think, with some, some success, I'm proud to say. I think between what we do on, you know, like things like social media and, and you know, on now with, with of course, with, with coronavirus being such a concern, a lot of the digital content that we create, you know, we're trying to do more with, okay, this is who he was and what he accomplished, and this should be his legacy, not this horrible, horrible death that, that he died. Um, but but yeah, I think when people walk through our doors here, by and large, that's what they know about him. Okay, yeah. he, they know he was president. They know he had this you know 
beautiful thick beard, <laughs> and they know he was he was assassinated. Yeah. Um, what we hope is that when they leave here, they have a better sense of who he was and why he's important and why is this place set aside as a national historic site. Yeah. We we have been getting, I will say too, some really you know uh, add you know some great help from from scholars. People are starting to pay a little more attention to Garfield. Um, you know, there's the Candace Millard book, for example, Destiny of the Republic, which, yeah. which came out about nine years ago, I think now, and it had, was hugely popular, New York Times bestseller. They made that into an American Experience documentary on mm -hmm. PBS. Um, there's, uh, you know, Ken Ackerman. Entitled Murder of the President. Yeah, Entitled Murder of the President, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ken Ackerman wrote a great book called Dark Horse, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago now, which is also really good on, you know, the politics and kind of explaining how Garfield came to be a, a presidential nominee and a president. So, you know, we, we've definitely had some, some great, uh, some great scholarship over the last 10 or 15 years that, and, and combined with, I think, and I hope what we do here yeah. that I think are starting to lift Garfield up a little bit. I'm not suggesting he's ever going to be viewed as, you know, greater than Lincoln or Washington or anything like Even that. Even though I'm, uh, when he's assassinated <laughs> and dies, that's sort of the idea is that, Garfield will be remembered even greater than Lincoln. Well, certainly the you know he had a larger funeral than yeah. Lincoln. I mean, the outpouring of, of 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 sympathy and and support for his family was was just you know overwhelming. Yeah. Um, you know, presidential assassinations at that you know Lincoln, of course, at that point was the only president who'd been assassinated. But you know that really could be explained away as kind of the last tragic act of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. You know. After Lincoln, nobody expects another president to be to be murdered. Yeah. Um, and so then when this happens, it's you know there's people are at you know how could this happen again? Why would this happen so soon too? So soon, it's, you know, sixteen yeah. years after Lincoln, uh, and then of course just twenty years after Garfield, you get McKinley. So it's sudden. You know, there's this great sort of social upheaval that 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 is going on, mm. but of course you, you also have to deal with the mental illness aspect as well. Um, would you know how would Garfield be remembered had he not been assassinated? My view as a historian and, and as a as somebody who studies Garfield because of you know where I come to work every day, <laughs> I I think he had great potential to be a really strong president. Uh, uh, I think he was the right man for the Republicans at that moment because he was still so strong on civil rights. I would say I'm inclined to, to agree with you. Yeah. I, I think he probably would have been the, the greatest scholar to ever be president of the United States. I, 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 I think um, my view is, again, had he lived and been able to serve a full term or two full terms perhaps, I, I, I don't think it's unrealistic to think he might have been a top 10 or 15 president. Mm. Um, again, I'm not saying he'd be over Lincoln or Washington or anything like that. Um, but I do think... Um, again, because of the, the strong convictions that he had, because of how well he knew the, the ways of Washington and, and Congress, because he'd been there so long, um, I, I think he, he had great potential yep. uh, to be really strong. Again, top 10 or 15, I think certainly would have been within his grasp yeah. uh, uh, had he you know, lived to serve this full term or two full terms. Well, if it's okay with you, I'm going to change my last question a sure. little bit here. Uh, or my second to last question. Um, so to sort of do my part and kind of change that sort of stigma of he's just a president that's assassinated, <laughs> what are some things that really happen while he's president? What does he do in that short period of time as his inauguration to the assassination? 
Well, unfortunately, he doesn't get to do very much for a couple of reasons. One is he has to spend so much time every day with these office seekers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the thing that really makes him, I think, start to come around on the idea of, of civil service reform. Again, eh, he's kind of lukewarm about it um, you know, for the years that he's in Congress and even when he's a presidential candidate. Um, but I think once he was elected and he became president-elect, he realized how annoying it is. Correct, and 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 you know he he starts saying in his diary, you know, what could a president do if they really had all day every day to give to the great issues of the country? Um, so he gets very frustrated about that. Um, but he ha but again, the conventions of the time said you have to see these people, you have to give them an audience. So he spends hours and hours every day doing that. So he doesn't get to do a lot there. And then the other issue is, of course this sort of very public battle he has with, with Roscoe Conkling, mm -hmm. who, of course, is the senior senator from New York. And um, Conkling, of course, was, was very powerful during the Grant years. Conkling had supported Grant again in 1880 and was very irritated and, and angry that, that Garfield and not Grant became the Republican nominee and then became president. And Conkling basically, you know, says at one point that, you know, he even says to President Garfield, your administration can only be as successful as I want it to be. And so they get into this very public squabble when Garfield decides he's going to flex his presidential muscle a little bit and he's going to appoint his own choice for collector of the Port of New York. It's this incredibly important patronage job. I mean, this, you know, huge number, a huge percentage of the, the country's uh, income comes it's from, from customs yeah. duties coming through the Port of New York. So it's yeah. this hugely important job. And Conkling, of course, is obsessed with, with, with controlling who is in that job. And Garfield does not think Conkling should be in charge of that. That's the role of the president. So he appoints someone that Garfield or that, uh, that, that Conkling opposes, and they get into this very public battle. And Conkling comes up with this, you know, what he thought was a brilliant strategy, which was to resign from the Senate in protest and then wait for the New York legislature to immediately reappoint him to the Senate. So, you know, in his mind, uh, oh, and he gets the junior senator, Thomas Platt, to go along with this, too. So Platt, he and Platt both resign, and then those New York state legislators in Albany are so happy to be done with these guys, they don't realize yeah. them. So that's the end of Conkling's political career. He really shot himself he, in the foot. He yeah. shot himself in the foot. Big time. And this is the major accomplishment of Garfield's presidency, is winning this public battle with Conkling. Yeah. Then, you know, shortly after he, he, he wins this battle with Conkling, his wife, the First Lady Lucretia Garfield, gets very sick with malaria and that he spends a lot of time worrying about her. He's afraid she's, you know, she's being told she may not survive. Um, so he spends a ton of his time worrying about her, trying to nurse her back to health. Um, she does eventually get better. And then when he is finally, he, Garfield, is finally uh, ready to, to start his job moving forward <laughs> yeah. in the, his presidency, He's he gets shot. Uh, and so he really, you know, the, 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 the legacies of his presidency, I think are, are, are minimal, but if you want to take a little bit of a larger view, the, the idea of civil service reform, you know, really gained a lot of steam after his death because yeah. of this idea that, that Gateau was he really began the conversation. Yeah. yeah. He began the conversation. Had he lived, 
Uh, I think he probably would have been the president that really did undertake some serious reforms. As it turned out, it fell to Chester A. Arthur, and Arthur is the president who, in January of 1883, signs the Pendleton Act, which re begins the reform of the civil service. And the irony there is obviously yeah, so great the irony is... because you know Conkling is a complete product of the spoils system. Yeah, never elected to any office until the vice presidency. Yeah. owed his entire career to the to the patronage of Roscoe Conkling, mm -hmm. um, and and you know when when Garfield dies and and. Arthur becomes president, guys like Conkling, and I think even some degree U.S. Grant, feel like, hey, you know, we kind of, we may have lost a battle or two, but we really won this war. Our guy is now president. And to his credit, Arthur wants nothing to do with that. You know, Arthur wants, you know, takes his role, his new role as president very seriously. And I think a lot of that might come out of still that fear of, I don't want to be seen as a opposition to Garfield, especially after he dies. Yeah. Of I want to make it seem like I am Garfield extended. Yeah, I mean I think there's yeah, there's an element of that for sure. Um and I but I think also that um I don't want to end up like Johnson. <laughs> well yeah, yeah, nobody wants to end up, you know, that reviled, I guess. Um but I but I think too, you know, yes, all of this is true. And I think too Arthur was you know, was a much more dedicated public servant than, than people gave him credit for at the time or since. Yeah. Um, and he knew it was the right thing to do. And he really kind of like Lyndon Johnson sort of used the memory of, of Kennedy to sell the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Act. Uh, Arthur did the same thing with, you know, viewing this, the, the reform of civil service as sort of a tribute to the memory of Garfield. Yeah. And it worked. And it worked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so really the last question I have, and I think this one's probably one of the most important ones, and uh, that is really how the national park system and uh, sites like this, national historical sites, can help those that are uh, just beginning to study history and those like you know myself that have studied it for a good period of time now. Well, you know – over half of the 422, I think it is, National Park Service sites that exist across the country are, are you know, their, their primary focus is, is, is an, an, an event or a person or a movement in American history. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the National Park Service is deeply involved in, in interpreting America's history. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, more people are going to be engaged with history in a National Park Service site uh, than are ever going to be in a college classroom taking yep. history courses or, or and even fewer are going to go on to graduate studies in history or anything like sure. that. So, I mean, I think it's vitally important that we, the National Park Service, um, keep, these his keep this history alive for people um, and we continue to talk about the national significance of whether it's, you know, a, a, a revered president like Abraham Lincoln or a lesser known, but in my view, at least no less important president than James Garfield. Um, and, and um, you know, we're fortunate that we are, well, you know, once we become units of the National Parks Service, we are here forever. Yeah. Um, so we will always be here to interpret Garfield's life and career and legacy and history. Um, and I think it also behooves us to 
um, to be we ourselves are we as Park Service employees who are you know creating this history for the public whether it's in interpretive programs whether it's you know in in digital content we create like podcasts or or websites or social media pages or you know virtual tours or whatever I think it's really important for us to also be uh, engaged with the best scholarship yeah. available um, and I really view us as public historians as kind of the bridge between the general public and academic history. Um, I like know, to think that there's a bit of a back and forth of, you know, uh, scholarly academic historians are sort of given that, uh, giving the scholarship, giving the, the information that the national park system and public historians are able to interpret to everybody else. But, but at the same time, the national park system, I mean, honestly, without it, I'm not here. Uh, there's no point in me doing something like this and doing the podcast. Uh, a lot of my passion for history comes from getting to see these sites. Yeah, and that's true for a lot of people, I think, yeah. is, is you know, it's really, they may not have, you know, gone to college to study history or anything like that, but, you know, they... they... But you don't, I, I and that's the one thing I want to say is I don't think you have to go to college oh, and no, study history not. to be a historian. No, now, sure. You might not be an academic historian, but right. you can still be a historian that's very passionate about the thing you're studying. I don't know how many times I've gone to somewhere like Gettysburg or mm -hmm. one of those big battlefields to where uh, somebody finds out I'm a history master's student or something mm -hmm. like that, and they'll ask me, well, have you heard about this regiment? <clears throat> well, no, I don't study a specific regiment. I'm studying larger general ideas, but mm -hmm. they know every little detail about that thing. That, to me, is just as important as what I'm doing. Sure. And, and you're absolutely right. And, and those folks, especially, you know, they, again, they may not go sit in a college classroom and take a history course, but uh, these places are the things that, that, that they, that really make them love the, the subject. Yeah. And so, so I think it's important that we, um, that we are here for people like that. You know, I think the the National Park Service works very well with academic historians. Oh yeah. Um, we, you know, we for example, you know, a great example of that would be um, uh, the many academic historians who, for years and years, were saying, "Why is there no National Park Service site that deals with Reconstruction?" Yeah. We have tons of Civil War sites, but we don't have any sites that deal with Reconstruction. And they were absolutely right. Yeah. And well, guess what? We do have that site now, Reconstruction Era National Historical Park in, in South Carolina. Um, so that's a great example of kind of the Park Service and academic historians working together. But again, I, I think what we can do is we can, we can sort of digest that academic history uh, and then make it into something that, that the public really wants to consume. Yeah. Um, because again, you know, not everybody is going to, to, to order books from, you know, university presses and yeah. things like that. You know, books that historians, academic historians are writing, um, for, you know, sometimes limited audiences. Absolutely. Um, but they, but, you know, you can get on an airplane sometime and you can be sitting next to somebody and they pull out a copy of John Adams or, or, or something like that. And you can see this is somebody who really loves this topic and they're, they may be a banker or a, I mean, I look at or a construction worker or whatever, and they're, yet they're really loving this topic and they're reading this 800-page book about whether it's you know John Adams or or U.S. Grant or or Frederick Douglass or whoever. Or I look at it as I mean, there's no way of getting around it of Hamilton. 
Oh, sure. The success of the Hamilton musical has been not only for something like historical sites that deal with him mm-hmm. personally, but for the academic historian. That musical is based off the book by Ron Chernow. Right, right. Of how that very specific audience can get taken out of that book and blown up to where it reaches worldwide acclaim and fame and yeah, I, I think session. <laughs> you know, and I think there are some purists out there uh, among you know historians who who kind of sometimes I think it's probably fewer that do this than than people might think, but really kind of sometimes thumb their nose at at, at these so called popular histories, whether it's a musical or it's a book by you know somebody like Stephen Ambrose or Doris Kearns Goodwin or or David McCullough or whoever. Um, and I, I am not one of those people, even though I, yeah, I, I have an academic background in history, but, um, I think anything that gets people involved in the subject yeah. is, is a good thing, whether it's, you know, well, a that, movie the more or people a documentary, that are involved, the more national historical sites, absolutely. Get, the more national absolutely. park absolutely. service. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a, uh, a, a, an ivory tower gatekeeper by any means, whatever gets people interested, I think is a good thing. And, and again, as I said already, you know, more people are going to interact with history in a place like this than they are, you know, in a, in a college Through classroom or something like writes, that. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I think it, it, it's, it's sort of our, our charge to, to make this history accessible to people. Yeah. And, uh, and that's really the great thing about, about national, about national parks. You know, we also, as, as the national park service have an obligation to tell, you know, all sides of these stories too. And that's why I think it's so great that we have parks now that are, interpreting african-american stories and latino stories and lgbtq stories um we are we are trying to become more inclusive so that everybody can can find a place that really speaks to them you know uh, we the national park service turned 100 years old back in 2016 and they we started this really powerful uh campaign called find your park yeah with the idea that no matter who you are, where you're from, what you're interested in, there is a national park out there for you, yeah. and you need to find your park. And and I think that's really a great message that you know the National Park Service is for everybody, mm-hmm. um, whether you're into history or nature or some combination of the two or astronomy or you know whatever. There's something you're interested in. here for you. The part the national park system has something for you, and that's Absolutely. why it's so important that these places are set aside. And they're taken care of, and they're here for now, and they're here forever. Absolutely, and uh, and that's really, I think, where places like this come in and, and really inspire people and get people interested in these topics. Yeah, and I think that's a great way, great ending spot right there. Okay, <laughs> uh, we'll we'll take a little bit of a break and have a little bit of a music break in here, and then uh, we'll come back and kind of say our closing statements and say goodbye. Okay. All right, well, uh, we're just going to wrap up here a little bit. I just wanted to uh, say thank you to the uh, James A. Garfield site for having me up here today to uh, record, and uh, thank you to Todd for taking the time out to talk about a little bit of history with me and being on the podcast. Thank you, and enjoyed it, and hope hope you get a lot of people listening to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just as a little bit of a shout-out to the site itself, uh, they do have social media. Uh, They're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, they do a really great job of it, and I really highly recommend you guys giving them a follow and and giving them a hello when you do. 
Yep. Thank you. Yeah, it's at Garfield NPS. Okay. Bye. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, again, thank you, and we'll see you next time on the history book. <laughs>